What we do here is special. There is nothing anywhere in the world, in the universe, like what happens here. We all gather here for one purpose, to worship God. That's special. But that's not the special that I'm talking about. Our worship of God is centered around his word. Not just the reading and praying of his word, but the preaching of his word. This is what is unique within Christianity. Because we do believe that the word of God is the actual word of God. We come together to hear it preached. That is unique. It's inspired. It's alive. Because we know and serve a living, loving God that is in our midst and occupies the praise of his name, we come together and spend time hearing the word of God preached to us. While this is unique and important and a means of grace to God, of, from God to us, we at the same time need to remember not to dehumanize the word of God. Because the Bible is an account of the goodness of God and the redemption of his chosen people. Much of evangelicalism has leaned so far to the people part of that description that they've thrown out God as being the center of the account. But let us be careful not to lean so far in the other direction in our zeal to glorify God that we throw out the human aspect of the Bible either. God is central, but people are important. This is a human story. Humans do matter to God. You matter to God. Your life matters to him. These lives mattered to him. Which is why when reading the Bible, we need to stop and allow the human factor of the events to really sink in with us. In doing this, by doing this, we will be able to grasp in a much better way the meaning and care of God towards us as we see how he cared for them. Before we dig into this account, think about what was just read, what you just read and heard read to you. This account is driven by human interaction, human emotion. This is partly why this account has been such a difficult one for Christians from the very beginning. One reason is that it begins the final events in the life of Christ in the book of John. There will be no more discourses between Jesus and the Jews over who he is. And there's only one more public interaction that will happen between Jesus and the masses. If the book of John were a play, this would begin the fourth act. And the event of that fourth act, the fourth act begins with, has been its own source of contention within Christendom as well. Because there's been many theologians and scholars that have had an issue with this account, with this event. The reason for that 
is that the people at the center of the account are named as though we should know them, as if they've been part of the storyline all along. There was a certain man named Lazarus of Bethany. Well, this is the first time that we've ever heard of this guy in the book of John. And in fact, there's only one other time that a Lazarus is even mentioned in any of the gospel accounts, and that's found in the gospel of Luke. And there, that Lazarus is a beggar who lay dying at the gate of a rich man who was then ushered into Abraham's bosom. Clearly, a different guy. Then we're told that this Lazarus was from the same village as Mary and her sister Martha. Once again, we have no context for who these people are within the book of John. We know from the book of Luke that these two sisters were the ones that provided hospitality to Jesus and his disciples, Luke chapter 10. But there, this guy Lazarus isn't even mentioned. And even in our account from today, we're not told at first that he was even related to these women. That happens in the second verse. This isn't how first century men were known by their relationship to their sister. And then add to this that we are told that Jesus loved these three individuals. So much so that that was the driving force behind sending for Jesus when Lazarus got sick. But the biggest source of contention for many Christian scholars is the fact that this illness leads to the greatest demonstration of the deity of a Christ in any of the Gospels. The one that is central to the final events of Christ himself. And yet no other Gospel ever mentions these people or this event. It's like John pulled it out of thin air. Well, how are we supposed to reconcile the fact that only John gives this account and only John mentions these people? Well, let's make sure that we have our thinking caps on concerning this. The Bible, while it covers many historical events, is not written as a book of history. While it covers the span of time from creation to recreation, it's not written to give us a chronological guide of the events of history. And it's not a human document. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 tells us, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The answer to all those naysayers, those critics and God judgers, judgers concerning why this account is only given here is the same answer as to why we should believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish and that there was a worldwide flood and that there was a Goliath and that God did create everything in six days. Because nothing within the Bible, was put in or left out by man. Which means that everything that we have recorded in it, everything, is there because God wanted it to be there. You need to check your higher criticism at the door. Your humanistic, philosophical thinking will do you no good in comprehending this truth. We may not like it, it may be hard for us to understand or comprehend, but this is the word of God. 
not the word for God. He knows best and has chosen to give it to us as he deemed right. And the Bible, the word of God, is self-authenticating. It uses presuppositional apologetics as its base to explain who God is and what the word of God is itself. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 2. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well and pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. The atheist will protest. You can't do that. You can't say that you know the Bible is the word of God because the word of God says that it is. That's circular reasoning. Circular reasoning is a logical fallacy. It's like saying that you can't break the law because it's illegal to break the law. But when you're making a statement about ultimate truth, you are forced to use circular reasoning to do it. This doesn't mean that your logic is flawed or that you're wrong in holding to this standard. When God was asked who he was in Exodus, he told Moses, I am that I am. This is a great example of circular reasoning making perfect sense. It doesn't make it any less frustrating for the person who doesn't agree with you, but it doesn't make it any less true either. And God was never shy in using himself as the ultimate proof that he is God. In his desire to make himself knowable to us, his creation, he condescended to write scripture through the inspiration and direction of mere mortals. And within it, he validates it as being from him, through him, and by him. But we can be, and many are, very quick to doubt the one means, the one means that God chose to make himself known to his children. The gift that he has given to us, his word. And this word, while available to all, anybody can purchase it. This word is like the blood of Christ. It is sufficient to save all, but it is only efficient for the salvation of those of whom he has called as his own. We know this because it is only living and powerful to those who are his children. All the rest will only take the scriptures and desire to analyze them, to tear them apart for validity, to question them and their value because they have never had Christ come alive to them through the scriptures. They have never had the word of God cut them to the very core of who they are and divide them to their very soul and spirit and reveal to them the very thoughts and intentions of their hearts. For many, 
For those that desire to analyze the Bible, to tear it apart and treat it like any other book, there should be concern. They are nothing more than modern-day Pharisees who had the word of God in their hands and in their minds, who loved to play at religion, who desired to put on a demonstration of their holiness and their righteousness, and who were willing to cast doubt on the validity of the word when it didn't line up with their goals, their thinking, their social or political agenda. This book is a gift from God to his children, written with the intent that through the scriptures and by the scriptures, we might have hope. Hope in the one that the scriptures, all scripture is written about. But Peter, who knew that one, described the Bible, the word, as a sure word, more fully confirmed than even the person of Christ himself. Did you hear what Peter said about the word of God? It is more fully confirmed, and we would do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. If this book is not living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart, then you really should be concerned that you have not been called as a child of God, that you've been deceived. If the word of God is a book that I can doubt because God chose not to mention this account in the other Gospels, if I can scoff at the validity of Scripture because these people are not mentioned anywhere else, then I have a real problem with the Bible. And the problem is found within me, not it. And if we are one of those that have an issue with God self-authenticating his word, have an issue with what we think is not logical or feasible, then let us understand that we have not heard the voice of the Good Shepherd, no matter the position or title that you hold. Jesus is clear. He is the way and the truth. And his word is truth. And if you have an issue with the fact that the Lord decided to have only this one writer convey this account to us, then you are going to struggle with the reality of this account. You're not going to like or understand that we are told that Jesus loved the man that was ill, and then he stayed. You're not going to like it when Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus has died, and he was glad that he wasn't there. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Most of us sitting here, when we would hear something like this, we would think that the right and proper thing to do is to jump up at that moment and tell them, I'm on the way. I'll be right there. Acting in this manner is called situationally motivated. An event happens and you've got an act. A tragedy strikes and you think that you must jump up to the rescue. 
This thinking among Christians, while in some ways is very kind and well-meaning, is also very self-centered and can be even self-destructive. And just because there's a situation doesn't mean that you are the one that must act. In fact, there's a possibility that no one is supposed to act. Here again, we are meant to learn from our elder brother. A situation was being presented to him that one that he had the means and the methods to fix. A situation that involved people that he truly cared for. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He didn't jump up, get his coat, and tell the disciples, time to go. And these disciples had heard the same kind of thing before. Only the last time, they'd asked him a question concerning the perceived effects of sin in the life of a blind man. There, they had asked him, who sinned that this man is blind, him or his parents? The answer that they received on that day shocked them. Neither. It was in order that the works of God might be seen in him. John chapter 9, verse 3. And then they witnessed those works come to life in front of their eyes as Jesus healed this man who had been born blind and then brought him into the flock of God as one of his own. But this encounter is different. There's no outward manifestation of sin like the blindness. There had been no question concerning sin. And in fact, no one said anything about death. They said that he was ill. There's a difference between being ill and death. One doesn't always lead to the other. So on the face of it, it could seem that Jesus was just reassuring not only the disciples concerning the well-being of Lazarus, but also those who had been sent to him. This illness doesn't lead to death. It's just an illness. But that Jesus spoke with conviction concerning this illness as if he actually knew it. And he knew about it, even from afar. It goes hand in hand with the second thing that he says concerning it. That it was for the glory of God. And specifically, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. As a way of reminder, when the Bible speaks of the glory of God, it means the manifestation of God's being, his nature, and his presence being revealed to us. This illness was not outside the will of God. It had a purpose, and Lazarus would die. But death was not the purpose, the reason for this illness. Glory was, which is how verses 5 and 6 are reconciled. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus loved these three people. The man who was dying and his two sisters who watched him die helplessly. That man who held out hope that the one that he knew actually did love him, that he had been sent for the one in faith in whom he had put his faith and trust and even his life. These sisters who had given of themselves and their worldly goods to provide for this man. 
the ones who prayed to this man, even as they sent for him. The ones who held out hope that he would come or that he would just heal their dear brother from afar. They knew that he could do this. And they knew that he loved them. So he stayed. And Lazarus died. And not a temporary death. He was dead, dead. And his sisters were heartbroken. Besides themselves with grief. You may think that that is not love. You may think this is not how I desire to be loved. And the second thing that you're thinking is true, but the first is not. Jesus has clearly stated why he stayed. In order that the Son of God would be glorified through this illness, Lazarus had to die. And that is love. Jesus did love Martha and Mary and Lazarus, but not in this soft, weak, and self-centered way that we think love is supposed to be. He truly loved them. And because of this, he allowed these people that he loved to suffer. Allowing people to suffer is not a demonstration of love. Allowing them to suffer in fact, causing them to suffer is mean. It's hateful. It's demonic. But only when that suffering has no purpose. No purpose in the life of that person who is suffering or in those lives of those around them. And more importantly, if it doesn't lead to the Son of God being glorified. Jesus loved, so he stayed. And then two days later comes verse 7. Then after he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again? Their response to him shed some light into that last account that we were talking about last week to a greater degree. The account where the Pharisees cornered Jesus in the temple. And after he told them once again that he was God, they picked up boulders to stone him. There was real danger there. They were serious about killing him. And that stoning would have ended the life of Jesus. And that encounter left an impression on the minds of the disciples. And they weren't in line for the stoning. Jesus answered them, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of, his, of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This entire section of scripture is filled with strange sayings. Add this one to the list. What does this response have to do with the Jews desiring to kill Jesus? What Jesus said to them is based upon their understanding of time in that historical period. They weren't as precise in their time management as we are. And they held that there were basically 12 hours of light in which was to work, and then 12 hours of darkness when travel and work was far more dangerous and difficult. And his response to them, to them in drawing their attention to a fact that they knew 
came with a revealing twist. The person who walks by night, who stumbles, stumbles not because he can't see, not because it's dark outside, but because they do not have the light of life in them. His response has never been about day or night, any more than the response concerning the illness not leading to the death had anything to do with whether or not Lazarus would in fact die. Back in chapter 9, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verses 2 and 3. That's almost verbatim to the response that Jesus gave here in this account today. And most of us are familiar with these events and with that interaction. But most of us also skip past the next thing that Jesus said to them then. He said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Again, the same sort of thing is being said. Only in the chapter 9 version, Jesus was a bit clearer about what he meant concerning walking in the daylight. And this then gives us the meaning behind what he is telling his disciples here. The light of the sun by which humans work is for the carnal man, the means by which they know when it is time to work. But the light of the sun for the spiritual man is the means by which they know that it is time to work. The one that walks in the night the one who stumbles does so because the light is not in them. They are not of the Lord. They don't have the light of the world illuminating their internal and eternal path. And for this reason, they stumble over things like perceived danger and hardship. The one that has the light of the world within them does not stumble. And no matter the time or day of night, or day of night, they walk in confidence, knowing that the one that is the light of the world is their light and is directing them, and he will carry them home. And in him there is no danger. In verse 11, Jesus lets the disciples in on why he is telling them that they're going to head back to Jerusalem. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. The disciples are central to the first century church. They are the pillars that Christ used to build it. But we don't really ever hear from them or even about them very much prior to the ascension of Christ. In fact, this is the first time that we've heard from the disciples since they asked Jesus about that man born blind in chapter 9. Before that question, 
you have to go all the way back to the end of chapter 6 to find a real conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And there, after Jesus thinned the crowd of those that were hanging around him, who wanted to be seen as spiritual but weren't of him, by telling them that they had to eat his body and drink his blood, it was then that after asking the remaining disciples who he was, that Peter made his most famous of declarations. You are the Christ, the Son of God. The relationship between Jesus and his disciples can teach us something about ourselves and about our relationship with him. First, about ourselves. It's not about us. We live like we are the star actors in the movie of our lives. We aren't. We are all bit actors in the movie about God. He is the star. He is the lead actor. We are just bit actors in this thing that we call life. And the second thing that we learn about the disciples and about ourselves is that these guys always seem to be two steps behind and one step to the left of Jesus. They always seemed not to get it. They were continually off base, not getting what he, uh, what he said. And then what we can learn concerning him. He continually took time to explain truth to them. They were walking in the light, but they didn't understand the light. Not yet. But he is the light. The light that they had within them that made it so that they wouldn't stumble. And he never lost his temper with them. He didn't get upset with that they didn't get it. He never got tired of the fact that they were always having to be corrected, to be redirected. He would tell them truth and then allow them to wrestle with it. And then he would make course corrections for them after that. This is love. And this is still how the Lord teaches and directs his disciples. He tells us truth, gives us truth in his word. He illuminates our path with his light and allows us to wrestle with the truth and then course corrects us in that truth. And he doesn't get angry with us. He doesn't get tired of us. He doesn't give up on us. Two days earlier, a messenger had been sent to Jesus telling him that Lazarus was ill. Now, two days later, he, Jesus, tells the disciples, pack up your stuff, we're heading back to where we just came from. And then he tells them why. Lazarus, the one who was ill, has fallen asleep. And we're gonna, I'm going to go wake him up. And the response to him is classic. They tell him something that everyone would have known. Well, if he's sleeping, he's feeling better. No worries. No reason to head back into town. They didn't even stop to consider how he knew that Lazarus had fallen asleep and why he had to go wake him up. As I said when we first started today, this section of scripture has been hard for Christians from the very beginning. The truth is that even within these opening verses of this section, 
There are so many confusing statements and events that happen that even after 2,000 years, we're still confused and thrown off because of them. So in the interest of brevity, let's break this section of scripture down into some basic components. There are two sisters who had a brother who all lived in Bethany, and they had a special relationship with Jesus. The brother became ill. The sisters sent for Jesus because they believed that he could do something about the illness. Their messenger arrived with the message, and Jesus, after hearing the message, told them that the illness didn't lead to death. It was for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then he stayed for two days, after which he told the disciples to pack up. They were heading back to Judea. This is the crux of verses 1 through 7. In verse 8, the disciples point out the obvious danger of heading back to Judea. And then in verses 9 through 11, Jesus tells them why he and they must head back. He has work to do. And in verses 12 through 14, he makes known to them the real problem that they would be encountering. The death of their friend. At the center of all of this is the question of the ages. If Jesus loved these people, then why did he not do something to stop all the pain and agony. We're told Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. If God is good, then why is there pain and suffering? If God loves, then why does he allow and even ordain pain in the lives of those that he loves? This is a fundamental question that matters. And it's not wrong to ask this question, since pain and suffering are real. And they happen all around us and even to us. But what is the answer, though? How do we answer this question? Is there an answer? Or is this life all just meaningless? Are we just pawns in a cosmic chess game? Are we merely robots following a predetermined path and really there's no reason for this life? Do we just tell people, ourselves, the answer to this is that sin brought pain and suffering and death into the world and this is just the way it is now? And even if we add that common, but God, into the equation, what does that really do? For the daily pain of life? How do we explain the hurt and loss and pain that seems to follow us like a hound to a scent? Why would God allow his children to suffer here in this world? That doesn't seem to be very loving. So let's answer the first question first. Is God love? 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. These verses tell us about the fountain of all love, for love is from God. And in verse 8, that God is love. He doesn't just love. He does not just give love. 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 He is love. 
Something that God demonstrates in the life of the Christian. Verse 9. In this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son for the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. There's one sense that the love of God has been poured out on all humanity. That's called common grace. The earth, the sky, the rain are all given to all mankind. And in fact, all nature. And that is a demonstration of the fact that God is love. But there is a special love that Jesus has for those that are given him by his Father. This is the love that John spoke about in, John, in 1 John 9 and 10. But the reality that God loves me, and even that I love him, doesn't make the pain, the pain or hardship go away. And in fact, that reality often makes it seem worse. And Romans 8.28 doesn't make it any better either. And those that, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for the good. That doesn't help. Well, here is where those hard things to understand in our verses today come into play. Jesus loved Martha. Mary and Lazarus and then he stayed even though he knew that his staying would cause pain well how is this love how can I stand here and tell you that this is love I can do that because a demonstrated performance the Romans 828 verses tells us that we know we know that for all those that love God, all things work together for good. But that's not the demonstrative performance that I'm talking about. You have to finish up the verses that make up that reason that we can know of Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those that love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God, in eternity past, chose a select, elect group of people to redeem out of the mass of humanity that he created. He chose to put his love on this select, elect group in a manner and way that is different, more intimate than the love demonstrated through common grace. He predestined us to be conformed into the image of his Son. Saints, did you do this choosing? 
Were you there and had a say in it? No. Long before you were born, it was determined to happen. But follow this golden chain of salvation. He predestined you to be conformed into the image of his Son. And those that he predestined, to those alone he called. And to those he called, to every one of them, they hear his voice. And they came, they come, because he justified them. Justification is a legal term that best could be understood just as if you had never sinned. That's the legal status that you, the called, the predestined, have been placed in. And those that he justified, he also glorified. The glorified part, that's the end game. None of us have gotten there yet but it's a predetermined fact that we will. That is home. When we we will finally, fully be conformed into the image of the Son of God. But we live in the justified part of life for most of our life. This is the part of life that Mary, Martha, and even Lazarus were living in at that moment. Well, where is the love of God for them? in that moment. To understand that, we have to go to another chapter from Romans. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, again, that word justification, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what it was to not have peace with God? To know that no matter what you did, no matter how hard you tried to bury the truth that you were an enemy of God, you could not. Do you not remember the day when the bright and morning star dawned in your heart? The day that you came running home into the arms of your loving Savior? The day that you finally knew that you were set free from the condemnation of your sin and finally had peace with God. Do you not remember? Or do you not know? Peace with God is an amazing grace. Something that we are told by Paul and the rest of this. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into which this grace, in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Do you remember what Jesus said concerning the illness of Lazarus? That his intended purpose was not death, but for glory. Glory for the Father, and that the Son of God might be glorified in it. We gloss over that truth. We diminish it. We don't see value in it. We focus on the illness part, the pain part, the death part. We fear these things, but we should not. 
We should not because of the justification part, because of the election part, the predestination part, the hope of glory part. We should have a different outlook on this life. Paul goes on, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Saints, God is love, and he does love you. He has demonstrated this love through the propitiation of your sins and the regeneration of your heart. And you have peace with God. But what are we to make of all the pain and suffering then? Especially in light of our, the account like today. Jesus doesn't seem to be acting in the loving way towards these that he clearly told that he loves. What am I supposed to do when life is hard? When it's painful? When it seems that at every turn I'm met with pain, with hardship, with illness, with death? If God loves me, if he has given me his son, if I am his son, then why would he do this to me? Because he does love you. Hebrews 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that it addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Did you hear why he disciplines us? That we may share in his holiness. We share in his holiness. Let that sink in. Jesus told these disciples that the illness of Lazarus was not for death, but for glory. Your illness, your pain, your suffering is not for kicks or out of anger 
It's for the same reason. For glory. Glory to the Father. Glory to the Son. Glory to the Spirit. And in that glory, we share in His holiness. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. The author of Hebrews continues, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The holiness that we're told that we are to share with God in is once again mentioned. Only here we're told to strive for it. Well, which is it? Do we obtain it by God as he disciplines us or do we work for it through his discipline? This is why what Jesus tells these disciples on this day is paramount for us, his disciples, to get, to understand. It's been said that the hardest thing about our daily walk with the Lord is the dailiness of it. Day in, day out, minute by minute. And it's easy to lose sight of the big picture when all we're looking at is at the the dirt on the ground beneath our feet. Very often we can lose sight of the reality of life because of the pain and suffering in this one. When this happens, we can fail to live in the reality of the real life and allow the this life, this temporal life, to gain control. This is why the author of Hebrews admonishes us to strive first for peace with everyone and then the holiness that we must have to see the Lord. He then tells us what that holiness looks like by telling us what it is not. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What happens inside of us during pain and suffering, hardship and loss? Those things, will either bring glory to God and his Son, or they will prove that the profession that we have made was just that, a profession and not a possession. Folks, we are like sponges. Our lives are like that. We look all nice and pretty on the outside. We can profess to be filled with the love of God, the peace that passes all understanding. And then the Lord, in his, good, in his total goodness, takes us 
and begins to squeeze us. And just like with that sponge, what is on the inside of us comes out. Don't fear the squeezing. Embrace it. For it's in this squeezing that proves what is really inside of you. It's when you are squeezed that the remnants of who you used to be are revealed to you. And at the same time, the reality of who you are in Christ is also revealed. When in the midst of pain and suffering, hurt, and even death, you, like Job, can look at your Savior with pain and tears in your eyes and say, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in doing so, your Lord, your Savior, your Master is glorified as he is lifted up in the heavenlies, as you proclaim his supreme goodness, his supreme worth and value over everything that is in this world. Everyone will face death. And death is for the glory of God. But the death of his saints is precious in his sight. Psalm 116, verse 15. Saints, do not fear. Have faith. Have faith in the one that conquers all fear, who does it with love. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He is holding you, even in pain and suffering, and he will hold you fast. Listen to the confidence that we are to have in the one that is our illumination. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depths or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray.